Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I can't wait to share another fascinating interview with you featuring teacher and PhD candidate Juan Fernandez. During our chat, we discuss why evidence-informed practice is important, how to find the time to engage with education research, why some edu myths will outlive us all, and much, much more. Whether you're new to the profession or an experienced senior leader, you won't want to miss this one. Before we begin, I want to say a massive thank you to everyone who listens every week and to those who support the podcast on Kofi. It really is appreciated, so on behalf of everyone involved in Tadape, thank you. And that's enough for me. Without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. So this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Juan Fernandez, and it's great to have you here, Juan. How are you? Uh, fine. Thank you very much, Kieran. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners and viewers. It's great to have you here. Now, we always begin with our guests in numbers, you know, to get a feel for who they are. And so my first question to you is years as a teacher. Twelve. First year group taught? It's K-7, I think. It's 12 years old. For, for us, it's first official. It's like the first year of secondary school last year group taught uh third official which is k9 most important year group for me it's k12 when we prepare them for the university yes <laughs> favorite year group it's also my favorite <laughs> blog posts 159 blog hits it's almost 400,000 readers now, and we are now at uh, more or less 15,000 each month. That's amazing. I mean, I take your blog posts and put them into an app that lets me identify words that I don't know. So I will every morning be reading one of your posts. And the most recent one was about um, uh, cognitive load, I think was maybe. Ah, Yes, yes. Yeah, preparing a special about cognitive load. So I'm taking the educational psychologist special issue, I think for 2010, I don't know, I don't remember the year. And I'm preparing some uh, posts about uh, that especially because for me, cognitive load is, is very, very, very important. Yeah, I mean, yeah, on a personal note, it's really had it because I understand the English sources. I can then use yeah. that to <laughs> fill, fill the gaps in my vocabulary when I'm, oh yeah, I understand what that means now. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And, and we're definitely going to get to that as we go through the, the interview. Learning Spanish with educational psychology. It should be like a special degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's certainly a very niche group. You know, I'm not sure how many of us are. <laughs> so you're a secondary teacher, avid reader and blogger, PhD candidate in psychology, the author of Educar in, in La Complejidad, which I think translates mm-hmm. the, the complexity of educating, from what I can remember. Yes, or- complexity of teaching i don't know because educating i don't know if it has the same meaning uh, la evaluation formativa formative assessment tell us about your journey and how you got here i think my journey starts uh, started at uni- at the university i studied biology 
So I used to read uh, papers and scientific journals. I participated in some scientific congress. I work in the Royal Botanic Garden in Madrid. So there, um, sharing scientific information was really important because I think in science, we all work that way. So my English really improved there. Uh, it has to improve more, but, uh, but I, I got used to read in English because science was written in, in English. But then um, with the crisis in 2008, um, everything changed. So I decided to go uh, to move from to teaching, which I like uh, because I was a particular teacher. And uh, I also work in, in teaching programs in the, in the Royal Botanic Garden. So when I started teaching, I was amazed but, uh, by how uh, little scientific information was put into practice and how CPDs were more like magic. So we got there, the audience uh, saw some kind of magician performing magical tricks. So, and I, I really couldn't know how to do it in my classroom. So it was like all, I don't know, like a kind of vacuum, like ethereal, like air. So I decided to start reading about teaching and learning from a scientific point of view. And from that, I discovered that I was better as a teacher. So that readings was making me, were making me better teacher. So that was great. But the problem was that many teachers in Spain don't have access to that scientific readings because they are in English. So I decided to translate them to, to Spanish. And that is how I got here. I started a blog with, uh, that at the beginning was very, very small and few people read it, really. But it has grown and grown uh, bigger and bigger with more entries and different kind of journals because I started with books. But then I decided to include scientific papers that for me are really important, like the base, because the books that I read were based on scientific papers. So I was like a bridge between the scientific community, then people who was uh, writing books based on that scientific papers, and that was me. So too many steps. <laughs> it was like a children play. Uh, and I decided to translate directly the scientific papers. So now I am more focused on scientific papers than, than popular books, although I, I continue to so to bring them to the to the blog. Yeah, that's fascinating. And completely by accident, you're this, the second biologist um, that's taken part in this season. We've um, someone from who's <laughs> teaching in, in Dusseldorf, and he was he was talking to me about the impact of stress. And essentially, he's taken his scientific background and looked at how stress can impact in the in the classroom. Do you reckon your sort of your foundation in science has made it a lot easier for you to do, sort of perform the role that you perform now? Yes, because we are used to, before starting an experiment, or for me, before starting to, to grow plants, for example, we need to read a lot. So uh, reading was part of our job. So to improve as a gardener or to improve as a, as a, as a scientific, in my case, about nature uh, conservation, reading was a very basic skill. 
So we can't live without, without reading, without knowing what other people is doing all around the world in other, in other centers, in, in my case, other botanic gardens. So yeah, I think we are trying to, I don't know, to spread this kind of, of work in Spain, because I think in the UK is more common, I think. Yeah, I get you. I mean, it's been about 10 years of quite consistent um, sort of snowballing. You know, it started with a few people, maybe around the turn of the decade or the last decade. And then bit by bit, more teachers sort of get into that snowballing. You've got things like research ed that are sort of sharing the, the work of people, you know, so I, I think you're right. Yeah, that, that's what I'm trying to do. And a few people, are, we, we are trying to do this in, here in Spain. We are, we are inspired what happens in the, happened in the last decade in the UK. Fantastic. I mean, and that almost feeds into my next question. Why is a, an evidence-informed or research-guided approach essential in our schools? Because teaching is something that is very personal. It's something like it's kind of a symbolic relationship. So usually we talked about the... Uh, differences with doctors and medicine, but they prefer uh, talking about architecture. Because in architecture, the goals, the aims could be different. So we are doing, for example, a house uh, to live, or maybe we are building a university or we are building a hospital. So buildings are very, very different. And the same thing happens in, in teaching. We could have different types of a school with different, very, very different type of, of children the social background and everything. But to build uh, something, we need to know how, for example, concrete works. So the physical properties of materials and the physical laws, for example, gravity are important. So when we think about teaching, we need to know like the basic uh, cognitive architecture of human brain. That is not to say that every people is the same, but brains work more or less the same way. This is something that struck many people here in Spain that no, because every, everyone is different. Yeah, everyone is different, but marketing or I don't know, the advertisements work because we are more or less, uh, our feelings are driven by the same things, for example. So uh, we can, we can uh, build on that scientific knowledge knowing the properties of learning uh, basic on cognitive psychology and translate that to the buildings that we each one uh, have in, in our classrooms. So our classrooms are, are different, our students are different, but the basic workings of our brains are more or less the same. So we can build on that. And we have several mm, teaching uh, methods and CPDs that are not based on, on that, that are the opposite of that. And they build on something that, like general skills or things that we know that they are not true. So when we base our foundations are wrong, the building will collapse for sure. So for me, it's important to know the foundations of, of, uh, of the, the material in our classrooms that are the cognition of our students yeah I'm, I'm totally with you i mean 
it gets quite a bit of kickback sometimes on social media. But obviously, Dick Dylan William will say that we have more in common than that which separates us. And I think you know you're totally right. You know, you can you can base sort of evidence informed pedagogy on some under you know general principles and then be re reactive or responsive in the moment when when those differences do present themselves. Yes, because sometimes um, it seems like we are proposing uh, one way to teach everyone. But that's not true. That's not true. We are proposing knowing how the brain learns, so how everyone's brain is learning, to create a different type of teaching adapted to our students. Because I don't teach the same way if I am at the first hour in the morning or late in the evening. So. Yeah, we talked about the summer in Spain, which is horrible because it's like 40 degrees. It's not the same teaching in Christmas when everyone is like hoping, willing to get into the holidays than, for example, in the end of May when we are tired at the end of the course. So, yeah, Graham Utkal says that, said that the um, teaching was adaptation. Yeah, it's true. But it's not so relative that we can't uh, get like general rules that apply for everyone. Whenever I ask guests about research, I often ask them about their research thunderbolt. Um, and to give a bit of context, in The Godfather, when Michael Corleone goes to the Italian island when he's hiding, he meets his wife and he's struck by this thunderbolt and he realizes this is the woman he needs to spend the rest of his life with. And sometimes people have a paper that the scales fall the evidence informed you know this is how rigorous it can be what what was your thunderbolt yeah i have one <laughs> My, mine was dan Losky et al in 2013 i think the name is improving the students learning with effective learning techniques or something like that because it, it's very long and it was like um very big research into the most common uh, strategies for learning um, they said that, for example, rereading is very ineffective, which was, I was <laughs> like this, and um, elaborative questioning was very effective. And when I read that, I realized that reading those papers could make me a better teacher. So for me, that paper was a very like high point. Yeah, because I mean, that's a massive thing because I, I reckon most people listening, when they studied university, they reread and reread and reread. Yeah, yeah. I you... totally did that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I never liked doing tests, and now I understand why I didn't like doing tests because I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't helping myself. You know, seven days, okay, this information is going to be here, but two months later, no way. You know, that makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, probably one of the most important things that we've sort of realized as a profession recently. Yeah, for example, highlining. They say that highlining is not very ineffective. It's not very effective, but I keep on highlining <laughs> <laughs> because I like to. to um, I read the books and then write in in notebooks like this. So yeah, I keep on highlining. So that's an example of what we talked. Uh, uh, we we have the strategies, but we need to adapt the strategies to our reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how many colors do you use when you're highlighting? No one. Just one. Oh, one. Yes, yes. It's only one. Yeah. I hate highlighting in ten colors. It's like a rainbow. Yeah, but cognitive load. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Too yeah. much for my working memory. 
I've definitely spoken to people with systems, you know, maybe five colors and they'll, they'll have a reason. But if I ever try that, I forget what the colors mean and or the ink runs out. Yeah. <laughs> How do you find time to engage with research? I mean, perhaps most importantly, when you weren't studying for your PhD and you were, because obviously now it's almost mandated, you need to read to fulfill the, yeah. the requirements of the course. But when, when you're teaching secondary, how, how, what was your process for finding the time? Yeah, I read at nights. I read during the nights. Um, it's difficult sometimes because um, they are not very accessible. The language is the, it's not the same language that we use. So I think it's all about practicing. So you start reading and you understand like 10%. And then you keep on reading and you understand more and more and more. So one clue and one thing that helps me a lot is try to read even if you don't understand. Because uh, maybe in the future uh, it will click and then you, ah, that was what I read like a few months ago. And for me, um, it's also helpful to read something that is related to the problems that I'm having in my classroom. So. Um, I, I, I think it's a kind of intrinsic motivation. So I read something and then a few, few days later, I see something that was related to the paper that I read. So I think, what is the relationship between this is what, it, what happens now here with this person and uh, the thing that I read a uh, few days ago. So that keeps me reading. But sometimes I spend a lot, of, a lot of time without reading and it's difficult to hang on again. I, I don't know how to say, but uh, I think it's something that it's like a habit. If you read quite a bit every day, it's easier that you uh, read like five papers and then you spend a month without reading because when you try to continue, uh, you forget. Yeah, I mean, it must be really difficult because we often talk on the podcast about how the language is sometimes chosen to obstruct the reader. And if, if you're coming at it from a non-native background, that must be twice as difficult. Yes, sometimes it's quite difficult, yes. Uh, that is why I started with uh, books, for example, from Tom Sherrington, Dylan William, because they, I think they were trying to translate the scientific articles to a language so from that common language i could translate it to spanish so that goes step by step but um for example for my phd i'm reading a lot of methodology methods which is like a obscure i don't know it's like reading about uh, dark matter for me and statistics inference and everything so it's all about practicing. It's all about reading and reading. My advice is read, although you don't understand, because at the end, you will understand. At first, 20%, and then 40%, and then you, it will start making meaning in your mind. And at the end, you will, you will get a glimpse of something that is really complex, but for me, it's really satisfying, because you are understanding the, the original science, Let's say that it's like the first step of this process that ends in my blog. So it's important to read the original sources because sometimes um, we, um, we try to do our best, but we misguide or we 
don't communicate the complexity of the original findings. And for me, that I am very worried about that in writing my blog. Sometimes we make simplifications to make the reader uh, the reading easier, and I think we we sometimes we we lose mm, like a kind of complexity that is important, but we can't communicate that to everyone because it would be very very difficult. So. Yeah. Try to read the original sources, but you don't understand a word. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's the nuance that gets lost, isn't it? And I remember when I was reading about storytelling, I went back to the evolutionary biology, and so mm-hmm. and so, and what what sort of biological historians thought about how the brain developed. And I remember reading those papers and not understanding a word. But maybe six months later, like you say, every morning I was reading a bit more, and it things started to piece together. So I think that, that kind of perseverance is definitely well worth it in yeah. the end. I mean... Yeah, but, but, but a key, I think that here it's key that you focus on several topics. So we can read about reading and then cognitive psychology, uh, working memory, attention. So because the terminology and the topics are very, very complicated. So choose one, for example, cognitive load and working memory and focus on that and keep on reading things that are related with that. So in my blog, you don't find mm, every topic because it's impossible because I don't know enough to, to understand if a paper is worth enough or not of everything related with education. It's impossible. You need to focus on, on something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, normally studies in English-speaking countries, they'll say roughly 25% of teachers are engaging with material like this. Do you think? Do you find that's the theme in in Spain? It'd be quite a low number. No, I think we, it's it's less. Really? Yes, I think it's less because you you have like bodies, uh, teachers associations like the British Educational Research that has a very very good journal, and you have Ofsted which is publishing things, and you have evidence based education. You have I don't know. You have research that you have many foundations and trusts and organizations that are pushing. Uh, evidence-based education. Here in Spain, we have events. So we need to (laughs) make a huge step from events to organizations, but we are still organizing events. So we have one event once a year, and it's like, wow, we have it. (laughs) Yeah, but it's one event. It's not a structure. It's not an organization. It's not um, continuous. It's not a progress. It's like... Something that happens one day, we congratulate a lot because we have that event, but it's not, we need the structure and we need people that are dedicated to that 100%. Not one weekend, uh, twice a year. Do you think it's made more difficult by the the sort of the structure? Because as far as I'm aware, you have provinces that are responsible for their own curricula and and the professional development of their teachers. Am I right in thinking that? Yes, yes. We have a national governing body, the Ministry of Education, but each province that we, we call it uh, autonomous region has competencies over, uh, over education. So, for example, the calendar is not the same. So in the north of Spain, we have uh, a schedule that is more similar to ours, to yours, uh, sorry, to yours, to your schedule. So we have, they have like a one month of uh, summer holidays, and then they spread their holidays all over the year. And uh, the curriculum is more or less 60% decided by these governing bodies. 
Sometimes the governing bodies are the same uh, party, the, the same political party as the government. So there is an alignment. But in most cases, it's not the same uh, political party. So they try to uh, boycott, <laughs> they try to jeopardize the, the national educational law. So it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. I've been 12 years teaching and it's my third educational law. I've been through three, three educational law, which change everything, terminology, objectives, the subjects, the name of subjects in 12 years. I taught uh, eight subjects that next year won't exist. So I teach in things that they don't exist anymore. I prepare the, I program, uh, do the programming, the slides, activities and everything. Yeah, we have the books, but they, these subjects just are, were erased at some point. Maybe they will come back in 10 years because we switch the educational law each six, seven years, we change. And we change terminology but we don't have like these structures to change the way we teach. So I think that teachers are doing the same with different names. So the practice, the classroom practice is not changing. We change the names and we change the documents, but teaching practice is the same. We are doing the same with different names. Wow. I mean, we're still getting over the, the curriculum change in 2014. I mean, we've changed once in, in my time in England. And yeah, if we changed, Two more times. You know, I, I hate to think what the situation would be like. So, I mean, English listeners will be listening, going, "Oh my goodness, thank my goodness." I mean, and that really sets up the context for my next question. You know, how can we take steps to become more evidence and research informed? I think as teachers and as schools. You know, I, I was going to ask about systems, but it sounds like the systems is almost beyond the realm of response. Yeah. Every time that uh, someone poses me this question, my answer is always the same. We need a structure. So that is the thing that we were talking about. Uh, we need a structure. And the structure is it's like when you are trying to organize the Olympic Games, uh, you don't get like uh, several motivated people. And then, yeah, let's organize. No, you make you made a structure and you, you said that we need a governing body that is responsible for, I don't know, the sports uh, advisor from the Ministry of whatever. So that is the thing that we need. We need something that is mm, like organized in a way that even people that is not willing to read scientific papers has access to very good uh, sources of information. So sadly, my blog is, is, is needed. I wish that my blog it doesn't exist because there could be something from the Ministry of Education or even from the autonomous uh, regions that is done by several people, a, a team, not one crazy individual like me, uh, a team of people that is paid for that. So they could assist to congresses, they could um, research properly. And uh, the communication between the scientific community at the universities and teachers is really, really, really important. So for example, uh, here in Spain, um, teachers should make a PhD to become uh, university professors. I don't know if the, in, the, in England it's the same. 
and uh, they stay uh, as uh, university teachers, university professors, uh, but because they have different names. And um, but they have experience as teachers in secondary or primary. So why we are living in these separated boxes? Uh, our our job is related, is it's intertwined. So we need to communicate these boxes. So maybe I could be a teacher, and I can I could uh, become a teacher at the university for for six hours a week, and then teach future uh, teachers. And these um, teachers at the university could make some research in my classrooms. So this kind of uh, collaboration is nascent in, in, in Spain. It's, it's beginning to grow, but it's very, very, very little. So we need more communication between the, the universities and, and the schools. Because if, if they want to do real research in, in real settings, so in real classrooms, um, what do we get from that? We need to get something, maybe some good CPD, or maybe opportunities to become engaged in some research. I don't know, but there are very, very, um, there are quite a lot of ways we can engage with universities and the research groups, but that should not come from individual motivation, should not be individual driven should be organized as institutions, should be something that it's taken for granted. We know that we could do that because a lot of people is doing that, not because they want it, because it's the normal way to become a good teacher. So this kind of a structure is the thing that I'm trying to, I don't know, to, to push here in, in Spain and, to, to demand. I, I am a little bit obsessed, obsessed uh, with that because if everything is that I write an educational blog, okay, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm, I'm glad that people find it use, useful, but it's one and it's doing something that, okay, my computer is broken and everything. I don't know. WordPress is bought, is bought by Elon Musk and <laughs> goodbye blog. <laughs> It, it's weak, it's very weak. Depends on individual uh, willingness. And I think, I, I believe in teams and I believe in organization. Do you think ministers or people in power are listening to the conversation you guys are having? Because you can, obviously you can see the passion that you're talking with and there are lots of others on online having the same conversations. The problem here in Spain is that we have like a kind of conflict, a kind of war, between psychology and pedagogy. And in the Ministry of Education, uh, there are only pedagogists. But I don't, re I don't uh, reclaim pedagogy. We need pedagogy. But the problem is that they are the only ones that, that have a voice. And every time that we try to um, get cognitive psychology into teaching, uh, they get a little bit angry because it's like their courage. I don't know how to say it. And yeah, we need more, more um, psychology and more um, cognitive psychology. When I talked about education, some people are very um, unkind with me because I'm a biologist. And they say, how 
a biologist is talking about education. Education is more about philosophy. So we are changing the, the framework. We are shifting the paradigm. And that is being difficult here because pedagogy was the only voice in, in, in Spanish education. And I think it's, it's also common in the Mediterranean area. Also in Italy, from Montessori, and in Greece, and even in Latin America, it's the, the teaching is, is informed by pedagogy that has to do more with politics and philosophy than with cognitive psychology. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, I don't know about lucky, because obviously we've got our own political issues in, in the UK at the moment, but the the ideology seems to be quite well aligned with the tenets of effective teaching. And I don't know what's going to happen when eventually the the party in power does change, because I know that education policy isn't necessarily a strength of any of the other parties. You know, obviously that's just my personal opinion, but I could, you know, the ideology could swing back. You know, some people say it swings every 30 years, regardless of what happens. <laughs> but I think, you know, we've just been reasonably lucky that we've had this period where, you know, despite everything else being a bit of a mess, education seems to have been given the opportunity. Like, you know, you're talking about the, the distillation. Our newest teachers, they have a, a set framework in which they need to mm-hmm. sort of look at essentially the principles of, of effective teaching. And so they will be pointed to the work of the Bjorks. They'll be they'll be sent to Sweller um, et al. And they're coming to us a couple of steps ahead of where they might have been had they not been, you know. So but we, we you know only the future will will tell us whether or not we get to enjoy that for, for much longer. Yeah, it's the early early career framework. Or exactly. Like yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I mean we we've just done a year and uh yeah, I mean I think it's had its challenges, but the actual materials are exactly what you describe. You know, here are the things that you should read on on entry to the profession. Here's how you get a, a head start on developing your practice. Developing teachers here are reading Freire, uh, Dewey, are reading uh, multiple intelligences. They are reading that. Arch, you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm just glad that you're there at ground zero, sort of pushing this in the right direction. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe they, they should read that, but uh, complement it with other readings. Because if you only read that, which was like 70 years ago, it's like this is innovation. This innovation has more than 50 years. And it's very, very ideological, as you say. So the problem here is that education is something that has to do with ideology, only with ideology. So every time that we try to push cognitive psychology into education, we get problems that are not related specifically with science or teaching. We are touching something more political. So the discussion is... You're currently researching myths in education. How might we better stop the spread of dangerous, damaging and and time-wasting myths? If I knew, if I knew that, <laughs> I would be rich and famous, and maybe have a, already have a PhD. It's very difficult because we know that we have cognitive biases, and some of them are are based on we try to reject information that is opposed to our views. So, as education here is very um, 
ideological. It's, it has to do with personal identity. So it's not about doing something in my classroom. It's, it's something about beliefs. I am very interested in teaching beliefs because here it's all about beliefs. So when we criticize, for example, multiple intelligences, some people get offended because we are not talking about a scientific concept. We are talking about their personal view and their personal attitude towards uh, himself or herself. So the discussion becomes very passionate because of that. So the first step, in my humble opinion, because I am starting to read about that, is evidence-based education gets us like a step farther away from our personal identity as teachers. So we can criticize things because we are criticizing ideas or scientific ideas or scientific research. So we can talk about that because you are not talking about me as a teacher. We are talking about scientific idea. That's it. Okay. And then you get the your classroom and then I get my classroom and then we do whatever we, we want after reading this scientific literature. So for me, the first step is uh, dividing what has to do with scientific things and has to do with our um, attitudes and beliefs as, as individuals. So that is very, very, very difficult because our job is not like uh, working with computers. I don't know. We work with people. So we get engaged with the people and we have strong opinions and strong beliefs about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And sometimes these this opinions have to do with our personal beliefs, I don't know, religious, political, social beliefs. Our, uh, our practice is grounded in, in that beliefs. So it's very, very difficult to um, stop the spread of these dangerous myths. Take, for example, the learning styles myths that is debunked over and over again. But in the end, people are willing to think that everyone is different. And if we could do better, we can attend everyone in a classroom. If, if we have 40 students in a classroom and we use learning styles, so they have a good intention. They, have a, they, they want to do good. But the problem is that it's not scientifically proven it's, it's it's scientifically unproven <laughs> so when we talk about that and the answer is but you don't want to to make in classical teaching you don't you are like uh, um trying to make coffee for all that's the problem the problem is that we mix personal beliefs with uh scientific practice and it's very 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 difficult to change that. In Twitter, I have discussions about this with people from one side and the other side, because uh, we aren't talking about scientific papers or no, they, we are talking about themselves. And we have to be very, very careful and very patient uh, with that, because we, could, we affect the way the people see themselves. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wish I'd have, I had a, a better answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, like you say, if someone had the answer, they'd be a millionaire by, by now. <laughs> they just won't stop. I mean, yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right. It's even if we know about the biases, 
we still can't, you know, account for them. You know, things like um, the sunk cost fallacy. You're still going to finish that TV series if you, even though you know it's a waste of time. Yeah, and stuff. yeah this, this summer I read uh, something in the newspaper that uh, the title was Evidence-Based Education is Ridiculous. And even though I am studying these uh, biases, I, I got angry <laughs> because it, it was like a personal attack. Yeah. It, it, they were attacking something that, it, that is my, I, I have a strong belief on, on that. So I have to stop for a few days before replying, because if not, I will reply from my heart and my guts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great answer though, Diego. It's, it's about how do we separate the personal from the professional and uh, yeah. I, I don't think there is an answer, but we can, we can just try bit by bit, like you say, sometimes just leaving things and responding to them when you've got uh, when you've got time. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully if, te if teachers are coming in earlier and getting sort of the more scientifically rigorous um, access to more scientifically rigorous materials at the start of their journey, then maybe they won't form those sort of misinterpretations or um, yeah, so I don't know. I think you're your spot yeah, hopefully. Your blog makes literature and, and research published in English available to Spanish-speaking audiences. Whose work should we be translating from Spanish to English and why? Okay, I think that uh, there, are, there is one guy, Hector Ruiz, she's publishing and he, he has a really good book, uh, How We Learn, Como Aprendemos, How We Learn. And it's like the Bible. <laughs> I said it's like the Bible because it has everything. It talks about motivation, cognitive load, everything. It's a very, very good summary of research about uh, education. And uh, we have also very good um, researches about motivation in Spain. In my blog, I have a video with an interview with Jesus Alonso Tapia, which talks about the motivational climate in the classroom. And I think it's it's very interesting. And the other researchers that I know that they are very, very really good, they are writing science in English. So you can access the, the papers like Marta Ferrero, um, Ernesto Panadero, they are writing uh, in, in English. Uh, so you can access their, their work. Um, educational um, publishers in Spain and are mainly textbooks publishers. So we now have, for example, John Cat Educational here. And uh, so we don't have as many educational books as you have. Uh, I tried like two years ago to translate officially by via a, a publisher, some books from, from England, but um, publishers uh, didn't think that we have the market here to, to do that. Yeah, that's, that's, data. <laughs> so they made some marketing and economical um, calculations and they thought that it doesn't, it, it's not worth it. Wow. I mean, Hector Ruiz, um, I read up, I, you know, I may have misunderstood quite a bit of it, but it seemed a really balanced approach because there was a lot of talk about emotions that I wasn't expecting to be there later in the book. You know, see, I think he's done a really good job of finding a fine, you know, you're talking about these different um, ideologies. You've got lots of the cold, hard science, 
but actually it, as far as I can tell he takes into consideration a lot of the external factors as well am I, am I reading mm. that right yeah and uh, I there there is also one that I want to mention that is Jesus Alonso that has uh, written about the history of neuroscience and it, it's very it's very good I really like it Excellent. And I'm not saying any of my books because my books are not good enough to be in that list. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I would disagree. Um, I was waiting for you to say it, you know. Um, I mean, how can people access your books? I mean, is it going to be up to me to ask permission to, to translate them into English and, and share them with blogs or <laughs> can they purchase them online? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> like I say, I think it sounds like, you know, with a greater increase attention on uh, on sort of research and form practice that that market builds itself you know i think publishers can be quite cutthroat you know and so ho hopefully that changes because i mean i've seen lots of sort of great books and um, was it um the school isn't isn't in a park of attraction it's the best name for a book in spanish i've read in, in la escuela no es un parque de atracciones wow. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best name for a book <laughs> yeah but but if you i, I love uh, gregorio luri which is the uh, the author i'm not always um i agree, agree with that with with him but the problem is that if you read a book um it's not like a scientifically driven book it's more like an essay like my first book, my first book is an essay. It's not scientific. So we need something more than that. I love to read different kind of books, educational books that are like, this is my opinion and I have good arguments. Okay, for me, it's, it's, it's good. But as we were talking earlier, uh, we need data. So um, how many references? Yeah, uh, yeah that, that's, that's the question for me. So yeah, my first book is an essay. It's, it's me talking about education from my point of view. Okay. But my second book, it's about formative assessment from a scientific point of view. So they are different. And uh, it's very important to understand this difference. Because when we read something, we need to know if we are uh, reading opinions or arguments, uh, philosophical, let's say, or we are reading scientific evidence that could be put, in, put into practice in, in our classrooms. And it's totally different. We need to read opinions and arguments, but we need to um, distinguish between these kind of books. And sometimes they are very well mixed because in Spain, we have a lot of lots of books about neuroeducation, neuroeducation. <laughs> but I read them and they are like, but they don't have references. They don't. Uh, they don't. They don't cite anything. So if you don't have citations, this is not neuroscience. This is your opinion about uh, how the brain works. It's not the same. Okay, it's okay. But we need to know the difference. Yeah, I mean the prefix "neuro" is normally a red flag whenever I'm reading stuff. You know, it's normally there to, <laughs> yeah. to like you said, to dress it up as science, but it's not quite. Um, I mean, John Cat, I know that they, they translated Craig Barton's first book, High, which I taught maths into Spanish. So uh, yeah. maybe John Cat, yeah, there's, oh, there's, there's a Spanish version. Really glad to hear that. So maybe, maybe I'll have a word with them and see if they can uh, translate more. <laughs> yeah, there, there, is, there is Aptus, which is an organization from Chile, which is translating some books into Spanish. 
but in Spain, it's it's only a digital platform, so we don't have it in paper, and people prefer paper. In yeah. To highlight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I tried many times to move towards tablet-based uh, reading, but it, nothing beats a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we all, we discussed this a little bit at the start. What advice do you have for those keen to read? but are struggling to overcome the barriers, such as dense writing styles and long drawn out formats. You know, my, my advice is normally to skip the methodology because you can take it or leave it, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, start with books that are like the summary of the research. You have Doug Lemos, no, right? Or uh, David Dido. It's right. It's a great piece of summarizing uh, scientific research. And uh, although the Deutsch in the borderline between argument and scientific research sometimes, so <laughs> you need to, to read it carefully. But I think it's, uh, for me, it's, it's one of the, the best authors. And then you, you, you can start from, from that, Tom Sherrington and Dylan William, and then take uh, some references from that books, the references that you find more attractive from the title, and they are related with the, with the things that you're doing in class, in, in your classroom. And then start from that. In my blog, this is marketing, advertisement. Uh, um, in my blog, I have a, a section that is called resources, recursos. And you click on that and you have a selection of original papers uh, from Silverman talking about motivation, like the classics, uh, the principles of Rosenstein and yeah, for example, principles of Rosenstein is something that is something, it's a scientific paper, but uh, not at all. So you can start from that. There are quite a bit uh, scientific uh, references, but you can read that. It's, it's uh, written uh, thinking in teachers. So start from that and then, but don't uh, stop there. Keep on reading more and more complex things because it's 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 worth it <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean how often do you read a day i mean not when you're not studying for a phd how often do you five ten minutes or longer no longer i try to read longer yes yeah I, um i try to read like some novel once in a month or once in two months but usually um uh, i read about education yes and uh I, I try to read books, for example, when I'm in, um, after lunch, we take the siesta, the famous siesta, <laughs> uh, this nap, uh, I read books uh, that are more informative, like the ones that we talked about now. And then in the evening or when I have like 20 minutes uh, of, of focused work, I read papers. Uh, for me, it's important uh, try not to read papers when you are taking care of your children, for example. You, can read <laughs> you need time and focus time for a long period, for 20 minutes. And you read a paper in 20 minutes when you're focused. But if you are cooking, for example, or you are, I don't know, taking care of your children and you are um, doing anything else, you can have a book that is easily written and you read it like a novel and that's it. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine trying to do anything with 
with my kids around it's 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 them and nothing else you know, so you're yeah spend attention yeah. When, when it's needed properly yeah it makes a whole lot of sense yeah right. with my children they read harry potter for example and i'm reading doug Leboff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the way to do it <laughs> it's a really yeah. different kind of magic <laughs> In your own work, you've discussed how complex problems require complex solutions, you know, and I think many spend a lot of time trying to simplify the solutions provided for teachers. And that's come across the, the thread of our discussion today. Is this, in your view, misguided? And why might that be the case? It is misguided if uh, you are trying to confuse people to think that the simplicity is all, is everything. So the complexity is not there. So I have the magical solution for your problems, like multiple intelligences, for example. Now, everyone will be better off we teach multiple intelligences. But <laughs> you, do you know something that is the best for, for everyone? So, um, so simplifications are, um, are dangerous when they avoid us to think. So could be good if, uh, for example, Doug Limovs, uh, it's like uh, the systematicity. I don't know how to say it. We take what the best teachers do and they write a book trying to summarize the back practices of the best teachers. Okay, we simplify things and it's good. It's like a recipe book and then you take the things that, that you want. For me, that's, that's perfect, but... The problem is when the these recipes are trying are trying to to simplify education as a whole, so we avoid thinking. That's a problem, and this is very very common, I think, because we um, the, this uh, views like my views and the, the other views like. Um, opposites are based on simplifications. So in teaching, it's it's very common. You have like Guy Claxton, I think how, yeah, Guy Claxton has a book that I really dislike because it's based on this simplification about the others and my, and my people. My people is trying to make education, uh, education better and these other people is trying to do something for it's not like this. Everyone is trying to make education uh, better. But if you present that, uh, many people will be, it's, it's seductive in a, because it's like the enemies. These are the enemies, the bad people, people that are trying to make education uh, worse. Mm. That is misguided. That is not, uh, the, the theme of my first book is try to avoid this kind of thinking that it's easy, it's very easy, it's comfortable. So our brains like easy, uncomfortable thoughts. So your brain is, um, will be stuck by these thinkings, uh, by these thoughts about others and my, my people that are the good ones and the others that are the bad people that, are, that disagree with me. So yeah. Every educational uh, book that is trained uh, that you stop thinking 
and it's uh, it gets like a picture, a simplified picture for me. <laughs> don't stop thinking <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean I'm totally with you that's why thinking deeply is my um, yeah I love moniker. your yeah yeah yeah. you have to when, when we read something that is um, like putting a mirror on us and we see our practice in that mirror uh, that is evidence based education in, in its purest form uh, it's not like a recipe it's a mirror and you, you have contrast and oh it's good or uh, we can change that and that and that that's very kind of you say thank you yeah i think thinking is the most important thing we can do and what i try to do in my schools is try and make space so get rid of all the unnecessary workload so that the time i spend with my teachers is time spent thinking you know you can't tell someone how to use variation theory you can say here are some general principles here's how i've done it but you've got to think about how the questions behave with each other and stuff like that. You know? so, yeah, I'm totally with you on that one. The um, problem with, uh, for example, Doug Nemov's work that I love is um, taking it as a checklist. I should do that and that and that and that. And then you put tick box, but that's not the case. Yeah, oh, we, we, we love tick boxes in education. We love lists that we can just yeah. pick up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's probably why people get into teaching. They love to-do lists. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously you've mentioned some pretty prevalent examples. Are there any other examples of oversimplifications which um, our beginning teachers should avoid, try to avoid? People learn best when they are teach. Uh, then they are talking their preferred learning styles. We only use ten percent of our brain. Um, uh, there are there, there are uh, general skills like creativity or uh, problem solving skills. That is something that I love because we need to teach creativity. Okay, let's define creativity. First problem, because we don't have a, a definition of creativity. Uh, no, let's focus on some people that are like inspirations, like Einstein, that is used for almost everything in education. Okay, but he was creative in one way, but not very creative in others. If you read about Mileva Maric, uh, his wife, um, it's, that's not very creative. Uh, okay, so where do we start? Creativity is domain specific. Problem solv solving skills are domain specific. And I have terrible um, difficulties in translating domain specific to Spanish. So I'm very happy to be talking in English <laughs> only in this, in this moment. Because yeah, domain specific means that uh, we can be creative in biology, for example, but very poor creativity in maths, for example. But uh, there are people that are saying, and that is a simplification, that we should teach creativity in general. So they should paint, for example, in, in Spanish, in, in Spain, we have, in Spanish school, we have something that is called uh, atelier, atelier. And it's like an art um, uh, classroom in which they do, they explore things. And by exploring things and textures and colors, they think that children will become more creative. <laughs> to be creative in biology, I need to teach them more biology and evolution, for example. So playing with sound and with colors and with lights, yeah, it's okay with toddlers, with children four years old, but 
take my students 15 years old to be creative they need knowledge and that's that's as simple as that so a very dangerous simplification is the existence uh, of general skills that can be talked uh, like that so okay let's teach uh, creativity let's teach high order thinking high order thinking is has many layers of foundation that we need to build layer by layer it's difficult that's why we have the schools and we now have like one artist teaching creativity to everyone so that is a very dangerous simplification and and the other one um is like the teachers um like cpd is based on some kind of uh ideology that should top down it should go top down so these people is saying that it's good to do this and then woo, we as teachers receive like the meteorite and okay i need to do cooperative learning i need to do uh i don't know <laughs> problem solving i need to do i but no the cpd should be bottom up we have some problems some struggles that we need to think about that read about that and as a team we get solutions that are not easy they are step by step solutions to that problems and then we uh, think about more challenging uh, things or text to read and then we build on that and that is a very common simplification yeah i mean that's brilliant it's like a, a, a i don't know a, a chart of all the the big simplifications you know i remember the first time i read about domain specific knowledge and the role that knowledge played in creativity it was it was you know scales from eyes like oh my goodness you know because yeah. <laughs> when, when you're in school you don't know this stuff you, you just have your experience of school and you're not analyzing how you think but then when you when you look at it and you realize that actually you were very creative in the areas where you knew already knew lots of stuff about it it just makes so much so much yeah it. here in spain we have a tv program that it's called this is art that i love it, it's about art and it's um but the message is that everyone um, could love art just by intuition, but the own program has a lot of content. <laughs> so it's saying, yeah, everyone loves art and everyone can. But I now I will teach you how to look at this painting. I will teach you how to listen to that music so you appreciate it. Yeah. So the, the implicit message, it's, it's yeah, I'm saying that uh, everyone can, can love art. But at the same time, in practice, we need knowledge to appreciate why this painting is so good, why this music is so good. So the implicit message is it's perfect. We need to know something about art, how this guy was painting that, uh, which uh, brushes they use or which um, a harmony. And then we appreciate in a very different, in a very complex way, we appreciate in a, in a different kind of, of, of enjoyment uh, art. I mean, it, it, it's been fantastic talking to you today because, you know, a chance to think about all the things that we, like you said, we've been thinking about for the last decade or so, um, but really putting them back into fresh focus. And hopefully this can be helpful for your efforts to sort of support people in, in Spain. But I know it'll definitely be really helpful for people in England as well, when they're considering how they approach the, the sort of this academic year. And what, what time frame are you working to with your PhD? Have you got long left or have you, are you still the, the start? No, no, we're, it, it's, it's a five years long 
it could be uh, up to seven. <laughs> and we are, I am starting my second. <laughs> wow, well, I'm looking but, forward but to it. I've done, I've done things before uh, starting officially the PhD. But yes, we, I have one year and it's, it's based on improving some, uh, ideas about uh, teaching and learning in uh, Spanish teachers. So we are exploring uh, some ideas, unproven, uh, scientifically unproven ideas, and then we will try to test some uh, uh, strategies uh, to challenge those unproven ideas and to see if we can learn something about uh, uh, belief change and practice change. So it's fascinating for me. I, I love, I love the theme, and it's huge because uh, we have uh, located like more than 100 scientifically unproven ideas that are very common, and we need to select that because if not, the questionnaire will be like two days long, and we need to do it 15 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, I can't wait to read that when it's out. So we'll have a 2027-ish, maybe 2029. No, but it, it, it's been brilliant. Thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, for this opportunity. And I hope that they understand my Spanish accent. No, they <laughs> sorry Ab for that. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly much better than if I were trying to speak in Spanish the whole way through this. <laughs> <laughs>